We've been in this series called Work and Loving Work, Love Work. Uh, but today I want to ask you a question about that. What do you think about bringing your best to work or to the place you work or the things you do or you're asked to do? I was in a conversation with a doctor. They've stolen this from TV, but I did hear it first from a doctor. And he said, you know, when I have a bad day, somebody dies. What about you? Uh, I have a paper jam. The internet doesn't work. Uh, somebody gets mad at me. I don't, I don't know about your work. But uh, this story totally redefined what it means to bring your best to work. Uh, it was an airline pilot. His name was Captain David Cronin. He had just taken off from Honolulu, Hawaii. He was flying over to New Zealand, quite a jaunt, and he had a perfect launch, perfect takeoff. Landing gear comes up. Things seem fine, gets to 22,000 feet, and literally sheets of metal ripped off the plane, sucking nine people out. The sheet metal not only was sucked out, but flew into two of the right engines, totally destroying them. He's 22,000 feet in the air. He's 100 miles from land. He's got a full tank of fuel, 300,000 pounds of fuel. What's he going to do? What is your first thought? Well, I'll come back to that. We've been in a series called Love Work, and uh, like I just said, we've been talking about how God is a worker so in, in a world, in a, in a philosophy where, where we like kind of entertainment, uh, in the past, the Greek philosophy was we like to think, uh, so work is kind of a burden. God sets out this, this purpose, this precipice that, that God worked. And not only did he work, he was almost a gardener. He was almost more of a servant worker. And that work is good, and work is a way that we express who we are. And it's not our means of sustenance. And so that's how God started it. He calls us to create and to cultivate and to help others flourish. But we also talked about how the reality of work is that that often doesn't happen. Work is often filled with pain or conflict or, or, or too much of trying to make something happen. Well, that's because uh, the Bible tells us that, that humanity really wanted to find our source of life and our source of work apart from God. And so he gave us what we desired. And now we literally have to, to live off the land. We have to work as a means and a source of sustenance. And we can work too much, we can work not enough, but, but even in the midst of that, challenge in that pain, God gives us this gift. He calls it the Sabbath, this gift of rest, this gift of stopping, this gift of reminding ourselves that we're not human beings or we're not human doings, we're not machines, we're not prisoners to work. We are his people. So we looked at how in the midst of that, um, God chooses us as well. Not only does he give us this gift of rest, he gives us this, this choice to follow him. He comes after us. He chooses us regardless of our abilities, regardless of our, our circumstances, regardless of our families, regardless of our talents, regardless of our personalities. 
God looks at us and wants us as his kids. Not just to identify and showcase, but to let them flourish in who they are. And today, that's really where we take this off and, and, and go forward is, what does it mean to bring our best to work? What does it mean to know and understand that we are chosen by God, he has filled us with good things, and we are to live into those things? Well, the Bible actually has some things to say about that. Um, very poignantly in Ephesians 6. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it. If you need one, we'd love to give you one. They're in the back. If you raise your hand, um, Keegan will magically bring you one. It's really cool. Today I'm going to be reading from the translation called The Message as a way to, to look at it in a new light. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 5, says this. Slay, uh, servants, respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye on to obeying the real master, Christ. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants, doing what God wants you to do, and work with a smile on your face. Always keeping in mind that no matter who happens to be giving the orders, you're really serving God. Good work will get you good pay from the master, regardless of if you're slave or free. And masters, it's the same for you. No abuse, please, and no threats. You and your servants are both under the same master in heaven, and he makes no distinction between the two of you. Pray with me. God, will you let ancient words that have to be muddled through economic differences and equality differences and speak to us today, right where we're at, no matter if we're retired or student or working hard. We want to we wanna hear from you today. Let my words be a reflection of yours. Amen. So this verse, if you don't, read it from the message, it, it says slaves. And that, first of all, puts a huge kink in, in how we're trying to live this out because so many of us, we hear slaves and we think um, the last two or 300 years of the African slave trade. We think about uh, slavery that's, that's done by race, slavery that's done by skin color, slavery that's done by kidnapping, um, slavery that is lifelong abusive and horrendous. So even to reframe that, I realize it's a stretch. But scholars have have done tons and tons of research, and the bottom line is this. The ancient world could not imagine an economy that didn't include slavery. They just couldn't do it. Now, the slavery was different. It... um, whether it's in the Bible or in ancient books, it looked a lot more like indentured servitude. So the average length of time someone was a slave was 10 years, not lifelong. Uh, most of the people who went into slavery went into it because of poverty, because there was no chapter 11 bankruptcy or chapter 7 bankruptcy or whatever bankruptcy. You ran out of money and you didn't have any family that could take care of you, and so you ran out of family. And so literally you had to go to someone, a master, who had money, 
who could make a contract with you. I will work for you and you alone to pay this off. This many hours, this many years, and we're good. And then you go free. That's what much of it was like. Now, granted, you can find horror stories and horrendous situations, and I'm not at all trying to minimize that. I'm simply trying to say that, that the slavery we look at in Ephesus um, looks different. Not only that, um, slaves could own other slaves. So this isn't just speaking to the top socioeconomic powerhouses, the CEOs, the Bill Gates of the world, if you will. Um, this is speaking to lots of tiers of socioeconomic status. So slaves could own slaves. And slaves were city administrators. Slaves were professors. Slaves were doctors. Slaves were, were um, household servants. But they were all over the field of work. So the writer's goal is not to abolish these conditions but it is absolutely to transform them. And he does it in the most magnificent way that I think it still speaks to us today as to how we're to live in our work, in our lives today. So if we look at it, masters were told, masters were told that they should treat their servants or their slaves with, with kindness, with fairness, to not intimidate or bribe or threaten people they owned. Think about that. If a master is told to live that way, how much more should we be told to live that way if we're the supervisor or we're the manager or we're the teacher? Aren't we called to the same kind of fairness and the same kind of motivational speeches, if you will? And if we're workers... If slaves could find meaning and purpose and joy in their work, then how much more should we be able to find meaning and joy in work that most of us get to choose? Uh, if you can't agree with the first part, I think we would agree with that. So I want you to just think about places that you've worked before. Or maybe a place you work now. Maybe it's a school. You've got seven teachers. Um, Maybe it's a place where you don't feel like you have a lot of choice. I want you to think about what it could work if it worked. What if everybody brought their best? So, best way that I think to really get that picture is to describe the opposite. So let's think about when it doesn't work. And I would describe this as no one caring. Uh, I had one student tell me, school I can't even frame school being work because I have people come and they think their job is to breathe, to just exist in school. That doesn't sound like a very high level of caring. Um, you know, workplaces that, that work like this are, are sort of like department stores where you need something. Um, it's, I, I picture the superstore, not trying to pick on anyone, but like you go into the store for a purpose. You need something. And you walk the aisles and you can't find anything because nothing is titled, you know? And you look, you're like, I don't even see numbers on these aisles. And if I see numbers, I don't see any words. And then you look for someone in a uniform that looks like they might work there. And then you're just walking around aimlessly going, hello, is anyone here? Of course, there's lots of people, but not the people you need. 
when you find the person you need, they just stare at you like this. Uh, I go on break in a couple minutes, but I'll, I'll call someone. And then you're standing there for five more minutes doing this thing, like, how do I look? Should I get on the phone? Should I sound like I'm, should I look angry? I mean, even if you find what you need, you feel defeated and totally undervalued. Or is that just me? (laughs) At least frustrated, right? This is a place where people don't seem to care. Work isn't working there. People aren't bringing their best there. But now, think about a place that does this well, where people care. Easiest place I can think of is the Pikes Place Fishery in Seattle. I don't know if you guys have been there. This place literally almost went out of business. To sell fresh fish in Seattle is kind of like selling snow in Alaska to Eskimos, okay? I mean, everybody sells fish there. And yet, they had a motivational speaker come in and say, you know, if you just like each other, and you work as a team, and you have fun with the people you work with, You could be a pretty cool place. Now, it's the place to go. Uh, Google it later. Go on Vimeo or YouTube or whatever. And um, I I found one guy who lifted up an octopus in the afternoon. And they had cut out the parts that most normal people don't eat. And they lifted up. So there's a little hole kind of in the middle where he's got two to four tentacles in his hands. And then he starts walking like this so that the legs start jiggling and like teenage girls are just scampering away. Ah! Like, and he has a big smile on his face. I'm sure teenage boys do too. Um, and then there was this other man who grabs the fish and he's figured out how to make the fish talk, uh, kind of like those Billy Bob sing-along people, just by squeezing it in a certain way. And so he's having conversations with people, holding the fish. And then, of course, the signature throwing of the fish, which actually is quite difficult if you've ever tried it before. They have perfected this into kind of an art form. But... In moments of greatness, they will actually let customers throw the fish. So I was watching one man. uh, I didn't get in trouble for saying this. I just got Snickers. Who was probably on the 17th of 18 holes, should we say? And uh, so he kind of came up, and a group started to form around him because this man was doing the fish talk thing. And then he starts talking about the precision needed to throw the fish. And... This gentleman, he, he asks him if he's ready, and so he puts his hands out. And, and the real pros, they catch it in their hands. They don't, they don't do this thing because it slides off their clothes and falls on the floor, and then someone might not buy it. And, and so this crowd gets bigger and bigger, and this guy's grin gets bigger and bigger, and then he tosses it. And it's only four feet. But he caught it. And the crowd cheers, and everybody goes nuts, and it's like, that's a place... I want to work. And literally, they take other executives in to watch this. And it's not easy work. They're up at 5.30 in the morning. They're there at 6 or 6.30. They're hauling hundreds of thousands of pounds of ice in. They've got to haul the fish in. They've got to clean most of them. They've got to put them out. And they've got to be happy about it. And yet it works. Think about leadership at work. Think about when it's worked and when it hasn't. I was having a couple of conversations this week, and uh, here's one where it didn't work. Guy had to walk in and talk to his supervisor 
about getting some time off. He had a family thing. It was going to be a short-term deal, but it was going to be maybe even up to 10 hours a month where he was going to have to flex his hours to get off. Legitimate reason, had vacation time in the bank, uh, and, and thoughtfully thought through, you know, kind of like you do as a, as a student when you have to go in and talk to a teacher, which maybe not is, is a class you don't exactly like, like, when is a good time to do that? Not in the two minutes that they want to go to the bathroom between in the four-minute period. Am I right? Mm-hmm. So he picks a good time where it doesn't seem like an interruption, where, they, the, where the supervisor might even have space to think about it. He starts talking, and all kind of walls went up. Body language changed. The face gets constricted. He looks kind of constipated or at least disgusted that this person is even asking, completely wanting to give off this impression that you are absolutely inconveniencing me to make this request. And then when he gives it, grants the request, he lets everybody know how generous he is and how much said worker is inconveniencing the rest of the team. You work in a place like that? Now, what about when leadership gets it right? Same week, different person, same kind of conversation, same kind of situation, actually, where person came in, had to make this request. First of all, the manager, supervisor, boss, whatever, said, absolutely, come in. They may have only had a 15-minute conversation, but the worker left feeling like they had an hour conversation, like this man had or this woman had the most time in the world for this person. Immediately when they asked the request, he said, absolutely. She said, absolutely. We will, we will do whatever we can because we believe that family is important and we want to let everyone know that. And, um, and so you just keep me informed. You take as much time off as you want. Um, you let me know. I trust you're going to get your work done. Boom. A uh, little bit more about that. But he walked out, had to tell a coworker just how amazing this conversation was. That took a few minutes. Got back to his desk, opened up the corporate email. Boom. Email from the boss. Greetings, team. Just want you to be aware that so-and-so is needing some time off for family stuff. I fully support this. So if you see this person coming in and out of the office, don't question their hours. In fact, know that we're going to reduce their workload so that this person can fully engage in their work and in this thing that they need to do, which means the rest of us are going to pick up a little more, but that's okay because that's what we do as a team. And furthermore, um, if you have any questions or concerns about this, you can come directly to me. Doesn't that sound like a place where people would want to work? That sounds like work, getting it right. Work works. This, this book, With Slaves and Masters, is saying even more radical things than this. It starts in Ephesians 4 when, when the writer says, I'm a prisoner because I belong to the Lord. Remember that phrase, belong to the Lord. Therefore, I urge you who've been chosen by God to live a life worthy to which God has called you. Be humble, gentle, patient. Accept one another in love, 
and you will be joined together. You are joined together through this bond of the peace of the Spirit, so make every effort to continue this peace. He's saying, God has done this work in you to live rightly with each other, so why don't you live rightly with each other? Why don't you see people through this lens of humble and gentle and patient? I think, we'll get to the why in a second if you're still not buying it, but I think the how is just bringing that out. And, and, and so that's what he does in the letter. He goes, okay, if that's true, because of what Christ has done, then it changes everything. It changes how we look at our relationships. It changes our most intimate relationships. It changes our, our marriages. He writes about that. It changes our parenting and our children and our families. He writes about that. And he says it even changes our work. And so for an employee, I think it might mean respect your supervisor. Do the things they ask you to do to the best of your ability. I would say it probably means willingly engage in your work when you're at work. Feel free to leave it when you leave it. And be devoted to your work, whether or not your boss is present. I think it means that um, you see your manager as a person who's human, who probably makes mistakes, who probably needs your kindness, who probably needs your prayers, but certainly needs your respect. I would say that it means that we need to check our motives for everything we do. Paul hits this. Who am I trying to please? Am I trying to please my boss? Am I trying to please the people I serve, my coworkers, my teachers? Am I trying to please myself? Or am I focused on pleasing God? Can I focus on serving Jesus because he's the one who's going to give me the reward anyway? That's what I think it means for the employee. I think for the employer, it's a high call to say, see yourself under the same master as them, Jesus. So check your tone. How do you ask for what you need? How do you talk to your staff? How do you talk to your students? How do you delegate projects and tasks? Do you demand them or assume them? Or do you request them? How do you motivate? As a boss, do you motivate with bribes or fear or threats or favoritism, empty rewards? Or do you motivate by consistently painting a picture of this kind of future where it works? Where you realistically tell people what it will take to get there? Do you give your employees the benefit of the doubt? Meaning, especially the ones who serve Jesus, do you assume that since they serve Jesus, they're probably going to do what they say they're going to do? And, and finally, do you see the people you work with, the people who work under you, as literally human resources, living tools, or as people, people to be interested in, people to be excited about, people to be encouraged, people to care about. 
See, I think these are just a few of the hows. And if we did these things, I really believe that our best would come through with work. But then it would just be a nice motivational speech. See, Paul isn't interested in a nice motivational speech. Paul isn't interested in just improving the work conditions. Paul is interested in transforming things and people and structures from the inside out all because of Jesus. See, if we change what we see when we serve, we change everything. That's what he's going for. And Leah is going to come up and share a story about how that happened in her life. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, leave a job a few years back um, And it was a job that I thought was going to be my dream job. Um, And I was at a point in my life where I was really frustrated um, with where I was at in my life. Um, I was frustrated with God for taking away, or what I thought he was taking away, um, this job that I thought was going to be amazing. Um, And I moved back to the cities at that point, and I returned to a job that I had previously been working in a retail store. And, um, you know, like every job, you have certain expectations, or your boss has certain expectations of you. And one of mine was that I would meet certain selling costs. And so as I started getting the hang of things and started getting back into the groove, I kept checking, you know, to be sure that I was making all my goals and I was doing just great, just fine. And... I walked into the back room one day, and we have this big poster in the back room that has different um, accomplishments that employees have made, and your name goes under whatever accomplishment it was, and there was my name, and I got top sales for um, the month or the quarter or whatever it was. And I was like, this is great. People are recognizing that I am working hard and doing my best at work. Uh, A couple weeks later, I was sitting in traffic on 494 on my way to work, and I was getting really frustrated with being stuck in traffic, like most of us probably do. And it just kind of kept growing and festering in me, and I'm like, okay, why am I so frustrated? And I realized that I wasn't frustrated because I was in traffic. I was frustrated because I was mad at God, I was mad at myself, and I was mad that I was overqualified for the work that I was doing. And in that moment, I just, I started praying out loud, and I said, I'm sorry, God. What, what can I do? Um, and I just said to myself, all right, I prayed to God, sorry. Um, and I said, God, help me be a light at work today when I get there. And I started praying that every day as I was driving to work. God, help me be a light at work today. And um, I could, I noticed a change in my attitude. Um, I noticed a change in my relationship with God. And I walked into work a couple months after that, and I looked at the poster that was on the back, and my name was on there still, um, but it had moved, and it was under best service. And I kind of laughed to myself as I I walked um, to put my stuff away, and I was just like, thanks, God, for just showing me that you um, are a part of my life and that you are answering my prayers. And I still work there today, um, and I will often pray, God, help me be a light at work today on my way. And it's just been really cool to see how God has changed um, my attitude and the relationships that I have with people there. You know, as the band comes up, as we close today, I want you to think about 
what Leah just said and um, what is that going to look like for you and me? Because she changed what she saw as she served. She really changed who she saw as she served. She saw Jesus. She tried to see people as Christ saw them. Jesus introduces this powerful concept through a story at the end of his teaching um, in Matthew 25 that just nails it. He's talking to people about kind of the final judgment and how he'll put some people over in this world and some people over in this world. And and we don't get to judge, but Jesus says that um, even though in his life he didn't come to judge, that one day he would come back and he would judge. And God would give him that authority, and he'd place people over here, and he'd place people over here. And the people that he placed in his blessing, in his eternity, in his life, were people that saw whatever they did to whoever they did it to, including, as they wrote, the least of these. They did it to Jesus. If we change who we see as we serve It'll change everything. Jesus came on the scene, Philippians tells us, and, and he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or attained or keep and hang on to, but he emptied himself of his divine privileges. He became the form of a human, even a servant, including a slave. Friends, Jesus says he belongs to God. His will is to do the will of the master. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I belong to God. When we say yes to Jesus, we belong to God. Our will is not our own anymore. Friends, we need to see ourselves as slaves. We need to give up some of the rights that we fight for, some of the rights that we value, and I value where I live. I value that I get to choose my work. I get to choose the car I drive. I get to make a lot of choices. will of the master has to come first. When that 747 had this huge hole in it, the captain of that first thought, dear God, literally, and he prayed. Quick. And then he went to work. He saw what he needed to see. And then he went to work and he saw Christ in it. And he says, I struggled with the controls and there was no thrust coming from the right side. So I had to slow down the plane, not only because of the thrust differential, but also because there's a giant hole and it's sucking more and more air out of it. So if I slow down, it'll suck less air out and maybe no one else will fall out. But if I, if I go too slow, guess what? Plane's going down. So I've got to fight that point. I've got to figure out how to how fast to go or how slow to go. Plus, oh, I've got 300,000 pounds of fuel. That's too much. That's like 200 pounds too much. And it will crush the landing gear as I land. What am I going to do? Oh, and since it's so heavy, um, not only will I crush it, but there's also fuel, fuel and fire if I skid. That's not good. Oh, and I'm going too fast for the recommended landing speed. As he tells it, he put every piece of his 38 years of flying in motion. All of it. I would say he brought his best to work. But he changed who he saw when he served. And the, the, and the crew says, 
I've never, never had a smooth landing as I had on that day. The plane erupts in applause, not only from the crew, but from the passengers. We're saved. And the guy walks off the plane. Prayed my prayer, did my job. He didn't need any awards or accolades. He gave up that because he changed who he saw. Friends, this changes everything if we get this. If you're having a hard time connecting Sunday worship to Monday work, what do you need to change in how you see it? Because it'll change everything. It really will. And it'll change the world. We need to redefine best. It's not getting best boss. It's not getting employee of the month. It's seeing Christ in what we do. It's seeing ourselves as a slave to who Jesus is. And that means we belong to him, which means our eternity is secure. It means that we are set free from the demands of work or the traps of work. And we live in this new place where I am created in Christ and I can serve without any, without any of these outside circumstances, these outside pressures, these outside expectations. Not only can I do that, I can live out my faith, whether I speak it or not, by seeing people as fellow image bearers of Christ the King. Friends, that will transform work. That will transform the world how do you build the kingdom of God? We're called to create and cultivate. God's earth advances. Jesus says he's in control of the church and we willingly participate. Think about what that can mean for your life as we sing the song.